This is the Outstanding Advisor Podcast, the show that features outstanding financial advisors, advisors with an interesting story to tell. If you would like to be featured on the podcast, tell us why you are an outstanding financial advisor with an interesting story to tell. Send an email to oadvisorpodcast at gmail.com. That's oadvisorpodcast at gmail.com. And now, here's the host of the Outstanding Advisors Podcast, David Macchia. Today, you'll meet Curtis Cloak, a veteran advisor, teacher, guaranteed income expert, and singer. The man has an interesting background and a vivid concern for his clients' best interests. Hi, this is David Macchia. Welcome to the Outstanding Advisor Podcast, and I'm really thrilled to have as my guest today, Curtis Cloak. Curtis Cloak, I would indicate to you, is probably somewhat of a living legend in the annuity business. I think he's a gentleman who probably doesn't get all the credit he deserves for what he's done. We're going to explore all of that and more today. Curtis, welcome. Thank you, David. It's very nice to be with you. I'm excited to have you here. So uh, I want people to get to know you because you've done a great deal in our business. You've, you've helped the annuity business for years. And um, But I'd like to start in the beginning. I'd like to get people to know you on a personal basis. Where were you born? I was born in uh, Burlington, Iowa, uh, 1963. And it's a city that I'm still located in to this day. Um, and uh, raised here on a farm initially and um, raised my family here. What was your early life like? Well, growing up on the farm, it was very, it was kind of a humble beginnings. My parents grew up on the farm, both of them about five miles apart on the same gravel road. And, uh, you know, money was always tight, but life was always good. Had great grandparents and uh, we were a close family and did a lot of things together, a lot of fishing. And so life was pretty simple. Life was pretty easy. It was certainly not elaborate in our, in our world. I got Married young at 18, bought my first house at 18, and uh, wow. started out as a gypsum miner, about 630 feet in the ground. And until 1985, at 21, I got injured in the mine, and um, I was disabled for a couple, two and a half years, and was a financial advisor of my own, uh, following the path of my granddad's advice in managing my money, that he would mentor me into the financial industry. And I started out as really a debit life insurance agent for Prudential. And uh, lucky enough to meet some amazing mentors that helped me grow to buy sell agreements and business continuation, led me to group group health and group benefits. My business grew and grew and grew. And one of the CEOs that um, really took a liking to my credibility uh, kept pushing me to do more and more and more. And one day in the early 90s, he said, you're going to do my retirement someday, Curtis. And I thought he was out of his mind because I... Didn't do retirement. I was doing a few mutual funds. Let me let me let me let me let me, let me slow you down because I want to take that sort of piece by piece. There's a, there's a lot of ground that you covered there in a, in a short period of time. I want to take you all the way back to the mine because sometimes adverse events have a big impact on people's lives. Uh, the last podcast I had Gary Metler on talking about the awful earthquake in the, in California and, and how that impacted his life. So you you had a mining accident mining gypsum. Some people might not know what gypsum is. Can you explain it? Yeah, it simply puts the wallboard in your house, you know, the gypsum rock, the sheet rock. That's gypsum board that comes from a vein of, of the earth, a certain type of rock that 
they core out under the ground and in our particular mine, it's done in different ways, but in our mine, it's basically a 25 foot square hole about a mile underground where literally trucks and cars and things are running around down there about a two mile square. And uh, we had 11 spaces that we would drill 11 foot V shaped formation holes, 22 holes. And our job was a load dynamite and blow, blast them out every day. And then they would clean it up and bring it to the top and they kiln it in about I don't know, 1500 degrees in these big kilns. And that would turn into powder and they mix that with sugar and flour and a whole bunch of other ingredients and uh, put it between two pieces of paper, cut it different lengths, and that becomes a wall board. Wow. And you had an accident. Can, do you, are you comfortable yeah. talking about that? Sure, sure. I was, uh, wasn't what you would think with my story of being loading dynamite in the mine, but I was uh, also maintenance. And I was oiling chains in the mill one day, and I fell down two flights of stairs and messed up my back, oh. severed, severed a nerve. And that uh, was misdiagnosed, so the, the remedy really created the long-term disability I had, which would have been much shorter had they properly diagnosed it. I mean, they put me flat bed rest for six months and it was the inactivity that created the long-term disability mm -hmm. rather than if they had made me more mobile and active and treated the, the severed nerve rather than leaving it was structural, I would probably have been back to work in six months. But as it was, two and a half years, ballooned 100 pounds. Uh, when I got disabled, I had two children and by the time I was done, I had three. <laughs> okay so let's let's leave the mind facet of your life and how did insurance come into your life so there was a man uh in burlington used to be our uh, local community college basketball coach and he got in the insurance business and he did a lot of life insurance estate planning he did annuities mutual funds and uh, uh uh, group benefits. He started a third-party administration company called EBS. And uh, my grandfather really had three finance principles and that he taught me, taught me when I'd be with him on the tractor out on the farm. And he would basically say, give 10, save 10, live on 80%, hate debt. You know, he taught me how to hate debt. And he, and he said, save, save all you can, give all you can. That was his basic principles. And so with his leadership and a few more items than we have time to share today, um, I bought life insurance as a core benefit to my family. I paid it up, bought 120000 paid up life insurance with a $10,000 payment. I put 10000 in an annuity back in that day with a 6% minimum interest rate floor. And, uh, and I put $3,500 in Fidelity Magellan as my first mutual fund investment. And, uh, and so everything I granddad told me to do i did by the by the by the way i bought my first house at 17 gutted it at 19 rebuilt it and paid it off at 21 paid that that was what i did um and so leon would implement everything my grand i understood my granddad to say and when he came to me 18 months of my disability my my spouse and my children lost their health insurance because cobra was two years old and they lost their cobra benefit and so uh, I had to buy health insurance. And he did that too. So he came to the house and wrote that. I was 100 pounds heavier than the last time he saw me. And he said, we got to the front door. And I still never forget what he said. He says, you know, Curtis, uh, I think you think you're dried up. And I was a little offended at first. I sold one of my kids, another one hanging on my pant leg. My wife was standing to my left. And I was a little embarrassed that he'd say that. 
They said, uh, I think you think you're dried up, but he said, I want you to know, I don't know many men that's twice your age that's made so little and accomplished so much. And I really think that you have such a belief and a heart for my business, the products I sell, and a natural gift for what's good for your family as the direction of your grandfather. I think you'd make a great advisor. I laughed at him. For a year, I laughed <laughs> at him. And a year later, he mentored me in. And of course, it's the reason we're sitting here today on this podcast, uh, David, but that was the beginning. Wow. Okay, so how many years were you with that company? Prudential, I was with them for 18 years. Um, it was 1987. Well, this may prove that my math sucks, but eight, uh, 1987 to uh, 2004. Got it. Okay, so one of the... Uh, innovations that you've been involved with, Curtis, is the deferred income annuity, correct? Yes, that's correct. Can you explain how you became involved with that and what you contributed regarding that product? Yes. Yeah, so I, I mentioned earlier there was a CEO, actually the CFO of a major company in Burlington that I'd done $10 million of permanent buy-sell insurance with an agreement. I found an expert within our company in Minneapolis that was able to have a conversation about what we called back then a wait and see, buy and sell. Nobody else was talking about it. And it was the differentiator that got me to replace uh, the business that they had elsewhere. And it was a big case. I mean, for me, it was a big nut. I was 25 when I closed that $10 million policy. It was the last day I ever looked at Help Wanted Ads to do something different, quite frankly, because I hated my job for the first two years. But, but uh, when he said, one of these days, you're going to do my retirement plan, in the mid-90s, I started doing retirement. And I was doing immediate SPIAs for high net worth clients, high tax brackets, a five-year period certain, and I would ladder bonds behind it, and then the rest would be long-term growth and dividend-type investments. As I began to develop my asset under management uh, education, and uh, one day, one of the partners, there were five partners, one of his partners at 51 decided to retire early. Now, this put this in context, it's January 1999 and as i normally did i did a five-year spia and uh usually at those days it was a four and three quarter irr for the five-year period certain payout but this time it was between seven and a half and eight and i knew there's no way a five-year period certain would produce that kind of irr so i knew there was something wrong but i couldn't put my hand on it so finally after a couple of days of making calls and being dismissed i got a hold of the actual actuary that was on the committee that developed what was our SPIA. His name was uh, um, Joel Scalar. And uh, Joel said, hey, fax to me the quote. I think I know what the problem is. So I faxed him the quote and he called me back a couple hours later and he's laughing at me. He says, well, you discovered what we now know is our golden jewel. And I said, what's the golden jewel? And he said, well, our SPIA is not just a SPIA, it's also a deferred SPIA. And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, I want you to read the income start date. And I read it and didn't because I didn't perceive that it was possible. I didn't hear myself say it. He had me say it again. I read it a second. I said, I don't understand. He goes, read it one more time. It's really slow. So I read it slow. And I go, wait a minute. That's 10 years from now. And he goes, that's right. It's a 10-year delay, five-year SPIA. I said, you can't do that. Oh, yes, you can. Since when? 1979. I said, are you kidding me? I said, wouldn't that? This delayed version has been available that whole my whole career? And he said, it has. And I said, why didn't anybody tell me about it? And here's what he said to me. 
And this is a little hard to choke down sometimes in the industry, but he said it's a revenue problem. He says, see, a prudential agent, only a prudential agent can sell this. They get about 1.8% commission, whether it's a spear deal, it doesn't matter, because we pay benefits. We pay health insurance and pensions. Yep, and, yep. you know, you get about 45 depending on your contract, 45 to 5% on a variable annuity. And so, and we don't pay wholesalers any overrides. And he goes, it's no wonder you've never heard about the deferred version because who's going to tell you? Wholesalers aren't going to tell you. Marketers aren't going to tell you. But it's out there just in case somebody needs to get it. And so there, there it's set for 20 years. And I said, how many have bought this version of the product? And he said, two. I said, how do you know the answer to that so quickly? And he goes, because I know we haven't sold any except for two guys that were on the committee in 1979 that developed it. And I said, are you kidding me? I've designed a product that's been on the book for 20 years and no one has yet sold it. And he goes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And so I started doing ladders like bonds. I said, well, what if I did a five-year SPIA? And then what if I did a five-year delay and a five-year DIA and then a 10-year delay? And what if I did five tranches or four tranches? And what I realized is, and this is literally in 1999, for about 30, 40% discount of present value, I could beat net of tax, net of fees, the same income of ladder bonds because ladder bonds, I'm paying a fee for an advisor to put that together and then I'm paying phantom income tax on the deferral before the income starts where I'm getting deferral on the deal. Uh, all those factors created a 30 to 40% discount, same dollars in, same dollars out. I had, and I was doing, remember, period certain. So there was no longevity credits in this thing at all. And I become the master at laddered period certains doing SPIAs and DIAs until about 2007, and then somebody else came into my life named Garth Bernard, who was the chief actuary at fixed income side of MetLife. And he said, man, you're onto something. And he you know, left the MetLife after 25 years and became my CEO. And then we went around the country developing DIA products. And by the way, he named the DIA product. It wasn't called the DIA. Prudential was the only company in 1999 that had such a product. Nobody knew it because nobody talked about it. And uh, and uh, so it was It was a need. There was a few companies in 2000 that had the product, about three more companies came to the table and then we found them. We had a real dialogue of conversation with them. And uh, and so we developed software with Garth while he was with me and we developed, he as they actually developed several products from many of the manufacturers today. And and the name of the product became what I called it, the DIA, Deferred Income Annuity. So that's uh, kind of the story of how I come about that. Um, yeah, and I, I think it'd be fair to say that it's a it's a very valuable product, but perhaps maybe the most underutilized of products. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think because it's so unknown and it's dismissed. Um, by the way, it's not. Uh, it was only one point eight for a while. When I left Prudential in '04, I thought I was never going to get to write that product again. But David David uh, Odenath was the president of annuities at Prudential, and I. He, he knew me. He knew I wrote more of that than anybody in the country. And he called me three days after I left and said, we don't want to lose your business, but we got to do a selling agreement with your BD and if they're agreeing to sell it, he said, we'll give it back to you. You'll be the only guy to do it. In fact, my boy worked for me. He made it very clear that not even my boy could sign the apps. It had to only be me. And I might come out and my comp went to 3% <laughs> instead of 1.8 because they, they had no benefits to pay me. And, and so it's really the comp, but, I will tell you something. Um, my grandfather had a rule on the farm, and it happened more than once, but we would be eating lunch and sandwich out 
by the sheep or out in the hay mow, whatever. And and all of a sudden we try something different for a task and, and it worked better than anything we'd done before. And granddad used to say, when you work for somebody someday, Curtis, when you find something that works better and more efficient for the person that you're working for, doesn't matter if it takes longer, doesn't matter if it costs more. He said, you have to be imputed tomorrow for that knowledge. You can't wake up the next day, do it the way you did it before. You must be imputed by that knowledge. And I will tell you, when I discovered a 30, 40% discount to the cost of money doing income, where I had predictability and reliability, I couldn't ignore that over my personal revenue. I had to do that despite what I thought. Sure. It was a calling of my grandfather and certainly a spiritual calling in my personal life. And so but that's the reason it's underutilized, David, I, I think. Um, it's just, and it's hard. The products change. You know, we didn't, man, we didn't have Canex at first. We didn't imagine every time we changed two, two delayed Social Security five different ways. Imagine how many quotes I had to go get from the wholesalers and the websites. Sure. And Canex just rattled, changed yep. that overnight. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I, I get frustrated because <clears throat> I, I have, like you, I have concern for retirees and their best financial interests, especially women. And uh, there are so many advisors who don't address longevity risk. The DIA is a beautiful vehicle for addressing longevity risk. Here's what frustrates me. Smart people, smart advisors who would never think of, say, leaving their home uninsured against fire or leaving their car uninsured or leaving their valuable jewelry uninsured, whatever it may be, they leave everybody's income uninsured. And what what asset is more precious in retirement than one's income? You ever think about that? So let me tell you where the change in the pivot came. Another big um, giant came into my life. His name is Tom Hagner. Um, I started speaking on stages because I was the t- shirt tail speaker for uh, Garth Bernard at conferences he was at. You might remember some of them, David, Rhea, places I would sure. meet you at. You didn't know sure, who I was course. at the time, but, but we, we bumped into one another from time to time. And then Dave, then then it was 2009, Hawaii, Hawaii, MDRT, top of the table. I was there as a member. And uh, Tom gets up on stage, never heard of him before. And, man, he starts talking about steers and long-term care. Everything but idea he talked about. And he wasn't a big believer in the FIs. I'm, I'm in the undecided camp, I remember him saying. And so he was still working for New York Life in those days. And he had the opinion anything New York Life didn't have was no good, <laughs> including FIAs. And so I remember having one of my laddered spreadsheets with me on one of my clients. And I was so excited. I chased him down to the front of the stage, introduced myself, handed to him my card. And I said, I want to show you something. And so he agreed to go uh, to, to breakfast with me, with me the next morning. And I'd shared the spreadsheet with him before the, the, the day we'd met. And when we got to breakfast, he's looking at my sheet. And he says, Curtis, I don't think there's anything to this DIA thing. And I said, I don't understand, Tom. He goes, well, New York Life doesn't have a DIA. Well, what, what he didn't understand was that Garth Bernard was on the innovation committee of New York Life with Chris Blank at the time. And Garth was working with them on helping them develop a DIA, but because of an NDA, I couldn't speak about it. So I had to bite my tongue and bleed inside my mouth. Well, Tom said he didn't think anything about it, but what he brought to me was longevity credits. And he goes, Curtis, you can't be building retirement plans and leaving clients naked just because you can argue you give them a great IRR and you preserved all the assets, dead or alive, 
you got to put a longevity tail on the end of that. You got to put a bow on the end of that wrapper. And so I started laddering all that together with what I would call a longevity tail. But then we start testing, well, are we better off just buying the longevity piece as part of the as part of the layers of income in the bucket strategy? And what we found was you got swip and you got bucket and you got floor. And you know what? 90% of the time, neither a one of those by themselves is efficient. And I started saying that and it got a lot of people offended. But the hybrid strategy where you do some floor and some bucket and some safe SWIP on 3% or under from a portfolio of investments that are volatile in the market is 90% of the time the most efficient generality of allocation of both income and growth and liquidity one can possibly create. But the problem is it takes software. You can't do it on your head. You can't do it in the yellow pad. It really requires you to know how to plug data in and do it dynamic in tax, dynamic in Medicare, and dynamic in Magi. Very few advisors want to take the effort or the time it takes to do that. And when you do that, it's undeniable. I'm not saying there's a right or a wrong way to do retirement, but you can definitely get the most favored ways to do whatever it is you're trying to accomplish when you have all the tools of the hybrid at your at your fingertips, more so than if you're bent on one or another. And it was Tom I completely I completely agree with that. For most people, and I you know, I talk about the constrained investor a lot. Those folks get to retirement with savings, but the amount is not high relative to the income that they need to create to, you know, sustain an acceptable lifestyle. They have to have a hybrid strategy. They need protection against risks that can reduce or eliminate their income. And we need more advisors to understand that. You know, because... and, and so let me speak to that because I've been at conferences with Michael Kitchis and David Blanchett and Michael Fink, and we're fairly like-minded. I think of all of us that I just mentioned, maybe um, Michael, not Michael Fink, but um, um, uh, Kitsies. We might be the... We, we may be the most misaligned, but yet there's so much we agree on. So, I mean, he's a great guy, and I, I learned so much from him, and I think sometimes maybe he's learned from me. But but here's what I found is they t they, they talk about – I see these, uh, these uh, podcasts, these training videos. And, by the way, you know, I, I think I might mention, if you don't mind, that I'm an adjunct professor at American College, and I helped write the curriculum uh, with Michael Finka, with Jamie Hopkins, with David Littell for the Retirement Income Floor. So I became part – of the RICP curriculum, and I'm a, an, an adjunct professor that actually helps teach the entire course. And through that experience, what I found is many folks that say, well, lower income folks, they lower asset folks, they need the insurance of an income guarantee. But I'm gonna tell you something, those in the highest bracket where they have a lot of non-qualified to generate income, also will perform their portfolios faster and better and safer. Not that they need it, but it improves substantially their outcome financially, improves their returns, improves their liquidity, improves everything about their portfolio, and it's evidence of this. We work with a lot of clients as a referral from other advisors around the country. We just completed a deal in Fort Collins, Colorado, with a client that was holding $12 million hostage in a bank account generating all the yield that bank account would generate fully taxable. And we were able to replace 100% of the income that was being generated every month from the $12 million with literally $5 million. And we mm -hmm. freed up, we call it free the hostages. We freed $6 million up to do whatever they wanted to do with it. 
And so it's not just a needed source for those that have less assets or less income, as you, as you mentioned, David, but most advisors don't understand because they haven't taken the time to look at it because maybe it's not as profitable as everything else. And that's a perception, not a realism either. And so it's dismissed. That's an insurance solution. No, it actually enhances performance when properly utilized. Uh, it's not needed. I com completely agree with you. It's not about how much you have. It's about the dynamics of your situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay. So what are you working on these days? I know you're, you just mentioned a, a case. Is there anything sort of uh, next generation that you're focused on? Yeah, so there's some new tax law changes, as you know, the 2.0, that's really enhanced what we did, and we didn't even know it was going to happen. Uh, a lot of times, so, so you know, the rule forever has been if you've got an annuitized contract, IRA qualified type of contract, um, and you get, if you, some of those contracts have a fair market value and some don't, and here's the, Here's why that is. Way back in 2006, the IRS forced insurance companies with variable annuities and, and death benefit roll-ups. They realized one day you could literally have a $50,000 cash value annuity with a $200,000 death benefit, and they're getting R&Ds off the 50 grand when they could die tomorrow and the heirs would get 200. And they said, well, that, ain't, that isn't fair. And they created a special formula based on age, the value of the account, and so forth to determine what a, a modified RMD was going to be. And because they were worried that they would miss some of the annuity contracts, they forced all annuity manufacturers that were developing products for approval in the various states from 2006 and beyond to provide a fair market value 5498. Before that, any products before that that were annuitized products had no requirement to provide a 5498. And since then, they all have to up to this day. And so you could literally see that if I look at my fair market value of 5498 on the income annuity, and I'm looking at my 1099R box seven code seven, that I'm getting two, three times the amount of income I needed for the fair market value of my RMD, but there was no offset ability because the IRS didn't let me do an offset. 2.0 said you can. And so for high net worth clients, low net worth clients, there's a lot of potential efficiencies depending on what the fair market value report is and how they do the fair market value report. And it's different by carrier. There's no consistency on it, but there's a ton of opportunity to shrink the distribution of the RMD. And we're trying to exploit that to education as fast as we can. That's one. Number two is we've revamped because so many changes in products and rates and everything that's going on out there. We're actually doing our next live class, first one in two years. May the 9th and the 10th, Thrive University will be held in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, and so we'll have a brand new class of new advisors um, that's coming. We have a lot of old advisors that are coming back for the third and fourth time as well. Uh, but if, you, if you're interested in learning a deep dive of, of these strategies and concepts, um, you can go to Curtis Cloak, and you can see my name, my title there, curtiscloak.com and go to Thrive University events. You can register right online there. Uh, that's one of the things, another thing obviously that we're doing. And then I just wanna mention that because of my work with Tom Hagnab, he called me 2010 after New York Life launched two of their DIAs. And he said, my goodness, there is something to this and I want you to do my plan. And so since January of 2000, uh, sometime in 2010, I've been doing Tom Hagnab's personal retirement plan and part of his estate plan. He's got others also helping him with the estate plan. But 
uh, Tom and I have continued to work together since that time. And, uh, and I think there's others that we bring into the table, like we become part of the committee for uh, housing wealth and reverse mortgages. There, there's a whole play of lifetime income with reverse mortgages that you've got to consider if you're going to really do an efficient job, especially for lower income households that may be house rich, if you will. There's just so many off the wall or different or alternative methods that improve with low dollars, more income with less dollars for the client, more sustainable lifestyle. And it, it's many of the things that normally just get dismissed. If all I ever want to do is crank my AUM machine and I don't want to think strategically and I don't want to be complicated with all the different product changes and the roll-ups and the withdrawal rate, I don't have, have to think about all that. It takes a lot of work to do this, but the payoff for our clients is so huge that if we yeah. really care about them, we won't dismiss this as a bad idea, or we won't push it off as some stupid annuity. We'll understand there's 42 types of annuities, and they don't even have the same complexion. Shoot, there's 150 types of mutual funds. It doesn't make them all bad because one is. And look at how many stocks and bonds are. Look, they're not all bad because there's one that well. is. Let me let me let me comment on something that should give everyone incentive to listen carefully to what you're saying and to act on it. In just a few years, women will control virtually all of the available assets mm -hmm. to manage. Now, male advisors better understand that what they've been serving up is not what women really want. And, you know, when I talk to male advisors, maybe you have the same experience, Curtis, and I bring up the fact that seven out of 10 are fired by widows within one year of their husband's passing. Here's what I hear. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I'm not, that doesn't concern me. I have a great relationship with the women. Well, everybody says that to me. Everybody. Yet seven out of 10 are fired. So what that tells me is that there's a lot of false senses of security out there, right? I think everybody has to, you know, prudently listen to what you're saying, look at guarantees, look at this kind of planning, because that's what aligns with what women are looking for. You know, and I, if you miss that target, yeah. you might as well leave the business now. Spot on, spot on. And so you need to understand anyone that does counseling with women, understand that the number one thing that women fear is stability and safety especially when it comes to income and retirement. And, uh, and you know, we're, I'm an advisor. I manage client, about 2,000 clients in all 50 states with clients all over the country. And, and, and I will tell you that when we initiate retirement planning for the initial meetings and uh, up to the close, if a client shows up without a spouse, and I don't care if it's him without her or her without him, we'll reschedule. We'll refuse to meet. Sometimes it makes them mad. Sometimes they don't come back, and I don't care. Because we've come to realize that that one or the other will eventually feel left out. And I'll tell you, we hook them pretty quick with the first discussion of the first meeting, and we don't talk product in the first meeting. But a lot of times, one spouse may be the financial dominant of the two, and they have the pension. Now, this is getting less and less true, but it matters a ton if she's going to live longer than him what pension option they elect. And I will tell you, when she he doesn't have the pressure of her in the room, there's a greater chance, I'm not saying it's what percent it is, it depends on the individual, but there's greater chance he'll talk him into himself having the, the sole life 
benefit because mm-hmm. there's so much more income and leave her in the dust if he gets hit by a Mack truck too soon. And she's the one that suffers and she didn't even know what hit her. And the same is true of yeah, Social yeah. Security election. And so when I show what's in it for both of them and I make sure that the wife or the spouse female in the room understands very quickly how important it is for the decisions and for them to be made, not just for him, but we talk about the benefits of the surviving spouse. She never wants to not come back, at least in the planning phase. And when you do that and you create a friend where then you're not meeting them for the first time after the death of the husband, you know, it creates continuity with that spouse. They feel confident with you. And, uh, but, but this is a mistake. A lot of times you, they, you let your clients determine who you're meeting with. And I think it's a violation of, of her, especially in the female side. And it's a mistake long-term for your practice to exclude women in the conversation. You know, I read an article just before we started here in Financial Planning Magazine written by somebody that I've known for a long time, Douglas Mantelli. He's now with Pacific Life talking about the reasons that RIAs don't engage with annuities. I've written a lot about this. I've probably written 20 articles about RIAs needing to, you know, embrace annuities. And, you know, Doug pointed out some of the primary reasons, but all of the reasons have been factored out. You know, there are RIA annuities are real. They're friendly to their practice. They integrate with portfolio management systems. They have no surrender charge. Hey, there's no excuse. There's no excuse. Um, I have a firm conviction that RIAs, unless they quickly reorient their thinking, are going to lose a lot of clients and assets in the future, especially women clients. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And let me give you a little experience. At 36 years, this is my 36th year in the business. Let me um, let me tell you, I'm, a, I'm in a town of 22,000 people, 22,000, and we're 50,000 person hub in a 50-mile radius of Burlington, Iowa. And I will tell you that uh, because I'm well-known and I've been in the retirement business a long time, I'm spoke about at most holiday parties, at, at most of the events, at the fancy hotels and the restaurants around our area. And I will tell you there's a lot of comparison that gets done when markets do what they're doing in 22. And what they find is the, that the clients that have a predictability of income that's been engineered to their lifestyle, where it's surplus driven, and it, every month, doesn't matter what month it is and how long they live and what age they are, every month another pile of money drops into their account between their pension, Social Security, and the promise-based income streams that we've created. And if we have a dependency on assets in, under management, we've, we've driven the withdrawal rate that's the that's necessary to, to, to supply the surplus of that to be under or at 3% or below, very safe. We don't have anybody trepidating, especially when we build dividends into our portfolios to cover the 3% without selling shares for the supply demand of what the income promise-based income does not provide. And when we do that, we talk about the markets, but the pressure for me as an advisor managing those assets is different. And the pressure for the client to do something, oh my, the wrong thing is different. And it's a beautiful way to manage long-term portfolios. And I've got hundreds of clients in my region because I've been doing this since 1999. All the same way, obviously, learning and growing and doing better as I get along. I'm not saying I knew everything in 99 that I know now. 
and I would have done things differently had I known then what I know now. But I will tell you the principle of buy income invested difference is applicable almost every single time. Very rare is it not, and, and mathematically I'm gonna know when it isn't. Uh, it, usually mm -hmm. it's a client that had two or three pensions, maybe they worked for the federal government, two or three different jobs, and have so much promise-based income they couldn't, couldn't possibly need all that income in a market like this. And so they're just growing their money. And those are few, very, very few, but they're out there. Um, and so I think advisors who get compared when they have these significant losses and they've got to lower their lifestyle. I still remember very well a conversation I had with Michael Kitches when I was arguing with uh, um, my, Wade Fowle about his research on safe withdrawal rates, the old 4% rule versus the three. And then Michael Kitches said, well, I argue and say it's six. And I said, help me understand six. And he says, well, as long as the client is willing to vary their income, up and down as the market ebbs and flows, they can actually take six. And I said, okay, that's good. I, I, I get that when you do the math, the math on that works. So we could agree, not disagreement. But I said, there's a difference between what works in the science of things and in the lab. And there's a difference between what really happens out in the real world, face-to-face, toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose with the client across the table. And that's this. We had 12 years of up markets. Imagine for, for 12 years, you were giving them six, happy as a lark, they're growing money, they're seeing their assets levelized or growing. Then we have a decline of 30%. You, you tell them, oh, no, don't forget what I told you 12 years ago. If the market goes down 30%, you got to take a 30% haircut this year. You okay with that? I haven't found a single client that retired for 12 years. They'll take a 30% haircut and be okay with it. So you can talk about it as it mathematically works all day long, but it's not practical. In the real yeah, these are these are abstractions that people get involved in that just yeah. don't work at the kitchen table. They don't work. And they a, don't and work. I I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to speak about Michael because I, I think he's really great. He's and a brilliant guy. Respect. He's, he's but, done a but, great I wasn't sure thing that for the industry. Of, I don't know that he did a lot of face-to-face -face meetings with clients where he actually experienced what the clients felt, you know, in the real life world. I think he was a research guy that could talk about things on how the numbers worked in the research lab. And, and so you, you sometimes got to take that to the real yeah. and then you got you got you got to decipher that for what's good for your clients. Curtis, you know, this has been a, a terrific discussion. I, I want to end with a, two or three questions, if I may. Sure. So you've done a lot in the industry, you're, you're, for all the things we've talked about, but I want you to imagine because there may be something else that along the way you thought of doing that was different than what you've done. If you could, you know, be different, if you could do anything else, if you could be a great Shakespearean actor, you know, a, a, a jet pilot, an astronaut, you know, musician, anything, anything other than what you're doing right now, if, if that fantasy opportunity was available to you, what would you be? Well, I'll tell you, the older I get, the more I'm involved in philanthropic causes I get. Um, and I, I look forward to what I call retirement, not retirement. So I'm never going to quit engaging and improving who I am and what I do and learning. But it's kind of getting a little bit less about me because there's a point when you might actually get enough. And I, I talked about the enough line in the retirement discussion. And I think retirement is about purpose and meaning and less about money you know, and when you've got enough and uh, it's everybody's decision what enough is. And I've got help, helpful ways of defining that, but we'll leave that not into this discussion now. But 
you know, I, I want to do that. But if I were to go back and be anything I wanted to be, had I had the ability to start over, and I think maybe that's the point of your question, I would have farmed part-time as I love farming. I miss it a lot, but I wouldn't have done anything different because I didn't understand. And the challenge for me to figure out how to, how to generate the same income with 40% of my income being generated on those variable annuity income riders in 1999 when, when Bill Stillard told me this, and then suddenly I had to go to 1.8, and then I had to be imputed by the knowledge that my grandfather instructed me to. I realized that I had three kids and a hobby farm, horses, and I had to raise an income. So this always becomes an income pressure. And uh, I have a long story about how I come up with capital to do the 1.8, 40% by raising my volume. I won't, we don't have time for me to answer. But what I realized that my calling was to be a ferocious consumer advocate over money because I realized that I not discovered this. And, and I don't know, somebody, Joel told me I wasn't the first to discover it, but if I did anything with it, I was the first to do anything about it. Apparently that was true. That became true. And I can tell you that, um, that, with no wholesaler telling advisors and no advisors telling clients, SPIAs would have been alive and well for all the reasons that they exist. But to be buying a discounted deferred income annuity with a SPIA or, or with a stock or bond portfolio or life insurance policy as an arbitrage would have never happened if somebody didn't highlight it. Now, I don't know who was coming behind it. It could have been somebody. And I didn't invent the product. I simply enhanced the discussion and shouted it from the mountains. And my belief was I became a, my purpose was to be a ferocious consumer advocate above the money. And I always sacrificed what I thought I could make over what I did make because of the purpose that was behind what I had learned. And so for that reason, David, I wouldn't change. I like the answer. Okay. Next question. I give you a magic wand. You wave it and you can make any change at all in the world of money, what would it be? I think a perfect understanding of all the components. And I'm thinking of the carpenter right now. You know, I also love to work in the wood shop and all kinds of tools for making furniture and sometimes for making houses. I mean, I built three of my houses from the ground up, plumbing tools and all the different tools. And you know, there you look on a you look in a real tool shop. I mean, there's a couple, maybe even a thousand tools. And when you look at those tools, um, your job really is, as you approach the product, to discover what the problem is or what you're trying to accomplish, and then decide what tools you're going to use. The carpenter gets really good at that, whatever his talent is. As advisors, we dismiss tools, and we think we name them, and we name this one evil and this one, you know, good. And we don't understand what the evil one does. And, and that tool exists for a specific purpose and a specific use. And the problem is that a lot of advisors misuse them because maybe it's a profit issue. So there's no product that's good or bad. They're all good for what they were designed to be. It's the use of the tool or the, the reverence of the use of the tool that makes it good or bad, not that the fact the tool is good or bad. And it's, perfect wisdom for an advisor world that could wave a magic wand could let them understand and see clearly without debate the value of each and every tool that exists on the toolbox. Yeah, that, that would be nice. It sure would. Lastly, envision your own retirement in a way that's the most ideal and perfect possible. Where are you and what are you doing? 
Oh, great question. I've been watching these rates. I bought three ladders of income starting in 2009. I bought a five-year period certain DIA contract with Prudential, by the way, that there was a 20-year delay. That's an extreme. Five-year period certain 20-year delay. I locked in the IRR, which was printed right on the quote of 7.30, 24%, exclusion ratio of 21, so 21% discount to tax, deferred taxes all the way for the 20 years. And then it's a five-year bridge to delay Social Security at 65. And I'm, I just turned 60 last Friday. So I'm five years away from that 20-year delay turning on. I put in uh, 50000 that pays me out, 50000 for five years. So when people say that SPIAs don't grow, they don't know what they're talking about. Obviously, not a longevity product. But then I bought, I bought another one in 2010. It's a Roth IRA. And I just put a very sizable amount in December 12th of last year. Uh, with New York Life, by the way, good company, um, and that's a longevity product. And so I have been building uh, over the years since 1999 my own portfolio, and though I don't know that I want to say it's complete, I can tell you that I've, I've created enough components to have my finish line uh, completed at some point. It's just organizing the parts and the pieces. And I've been able, because I quote these things every day, and we work with advisors every day, we quote these all the time, we can see the peaks of those payout rates. And when you do, it's undeniable. You just take advantage of them, David. So I'm in pretty good shape for my own retirement. And I can tell you, if you talk to Tom and ask him, he's pretty happy with how we've laddered his income as well. And uh, I, I don't think of anybody that I can think of that I could turn you on to that has buy income and invest the difference, buy income and invest the rest strategy that would ever tell you they would do it a different way. So that i mean clearly that's going to be financially you know you're, you're in good shape but where are you and what are you doing in retirement so um i'm actually going to be probably purchasing another home in arizona um mm -hmm. within the year would be my guess and i'm going to pivot between arizona where i'll have a different sort of uh, high network practice of just um, providing advice for fee doing commission products but crediting it back to the fee and i'll limit my clients out there about 25 would be my thought and I'll pivot back and forth between Burlington, Iowa and Arizona uh, and continue to speak and educate while I pare down the responsibilities I have within my practice over the next five years. And then I'm on a couple of charity boards and I'll increase my philanthropic causes. And I sing. Not many people know that I sing. I've been singing since I was about 12 years old. And I did some concerts with some folks I used to sing with back when I was 15 years old and had a blast. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do some. Okay. So I'm going to explore this now. I, this is, this is a, a curveball you've thrown me. Okay. <laughs> what type of singing? So I, I grew up singing Southern gospel, uh, David, and I traveled with a group out of Sisson in South Dakota called the Lundstrom family singers. And I, uh, the daughter of the, uh, one of the four boys is her name is Londa and her and I were traveling. We filmed the last primetime Christmas special for NBC at uh, Purgatory Ski Mountain in, in Durango, Colorado, back in 1977. And I haven't wow. seen her since 78. Wow. Last uh, fall, I bumped into her by accident in Minneapolis, where she lives and has a church. She said, hey, and introduced me to her husband, said, hey, come on back, let's sing. Put together a trio, sing in her church. And then she said, let's do a concert, let's go on the road. And I want the first concert to be in Burlington, Iowa. So down the street from my office is a little place called the Capitol Theater, which was the Capitol Theater in 1934 when they built it. It was the first high school air-conditioned building in Burlington, Iowa, and we redeveloped it to an event center. 
for recitals and, and musical concerts and hosted things. And uh, so I was very instrumental in redeveloping that. And, and so we did, I think it was around the 20th of or so, it was a Friday of January, we did a Lenstrom concert 40 years after they were here in town as a family. <laughs> And it was Londa and her band, her husband, and myself for a couple hours at the Capitol Theater in Burlington, Iowa. So it was a blast. Are there any uh, YouTube videos of your singing, for example, that people can check I'm out? I'm not sure. There was uh, there was some video taken that night. I don't think anybody's captured on video. Now, you can go out to uh, – there is some videos online. I think Londa's church is called uh, Father's House in Burnsville, Minnesota. And I've been there three times and I'm, they recorded it. It's online. You can go watch me do some old Gaither, some old Gaither songs uh, uh, as a trio at, in the church there at Burnsville. Very interesting. We'll have to check that out. Uh, Curtis, if folks want to contact you, what's the best way? Uh, office phone number is 515-298-4748. If you're an advisor, that's our education speaking side. If you're in a client, 319 758 484 is our office number for our business, Acuity Financial, A-C-U-I-T-Y Financial. Uh, my email address is simply my first initial last name, C-Cloak, C-C-L-O-K-E at Acuity, A-C-U-I-T-Y Financial.com. And um, you can also check out as an advisor, my software, my education, some of the work I've done at the college at CurtisCloak.com. Curtis, I want to thank you. Your your sincere concern for clients comes through, comes through vividly, and I appreciate it. It's great having you. Thank you for being on the pod today. Thank you, David. I really appreciate your interest. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to the Outstanding Advisor Podcast. If you would like to be featured on the podcast, tell us why you are an outstanding financial advisor with an interesting story to tell. Send an email to oadvisorpodcast at gmail.com. That's oadvisorpodcast at gmail.com. And thanks for listening.